Back in the 70s, 1970s, I worked with a phone company, and uh, one of the things I used to do was pre-wire houses. While they were in the process of being constructed, I would go and our crew would put wire in, you know, while the, just shortly after the electricity was put in. And uh, I remember one time being sent to a house that was um, isolated from the beaten path of the other track homes, and it was a custom home. And when I got there, I noticed that it had already been wrapped with, uh, I guess they call that tar paper, dark black paper. And uh, normally we like to get there just before that outer coat is put on so we can get through the, the two-by-fours and drill our holes and all. Well, when I got to the house, I went into it to see where the people wanted their, their jacks, their telephone jacks installed, and I heard something hitting up against a, a window is what I thought, and, you know, like a big bug hitting, a, hitting the uh, glass. And I noticed that there was a, a beautiful hummingbird that was trapped in that house. It somehow got in probably through a door that had been left open. And I thought, now what can I do to help that hummingbird get out? And I had a big, bigger than this, but I had a big, long hammer. And I decided I was going to try to offer the bird, the hummingbird, a place to rest so I could walk it out outdoors. So I, not knowing what I was doing, I walked real close, like a hummingbird hunter, I guess. But I walked very close to the bird, trying to hold the, the handle, uh, the, the hammer very still. And wouldn't you know it, 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 I thought it might fly away but it rested on my hammer, the head of the hammer. So I thought, okay, now is it going to stay on that hammer long enough for me to walk it outside? And wouldn't you know it, I, I got it all the way outdoors and it flew off. There are, I think, some hummingbirds in the church People have flown into a, a predicament or a situation, maybe mental, and uh, they can't get out. They're stuck. Uh, there are people like me with the hammer that are ready to put that hammer out. Now, the hammer would be the word of God here. So imagine you've got to hold that thing steady and you... Up offer it to someone to, to rest on, and then you slowly walk them out of the, the trap, maybe the mental or emotional trap they may, they may find themselves in. And uh, you are the one holding the hammer. So now, without spending too much time on it, you know there are a number of ways you can use a hammer. You know, you can... It, now, if I'd heard a rattle, I probably would have just left. I would not have even got the hammer out. But how you, how you 
handle the hammer or how you manage that hammer uh, could play a big role, could make a big difference on, on whether you're a help or a hindrance to someone in their problems. So the first thing I'd like to do this afternoon is just talk a little bit about the nature of problems, problems that may be hidden, problems that we may not see. Um, you know, often, and I'm not a professional counselor, uh, I, I read my Bible and I've studied with people who s- struggle with problems and try to find biblical solutions with them. But you think about the, especially elders and uh, preachers who do any kind of counseling in the church, the number of types of problems there are in the church. I remember years ago I was audience testing my material for the book Coping, and I decided to teach it at a retirement home I had been working with for a number of years, just coming in every week and teaching a Bible class. There happened to be one woman that I happened to know from the other residents telling me she was a difficult person, just difficult for everyone to deal with. And I remember announcing one one class that the following week we were going to talk about how to cope with problems. And wouldn't you know it, this one woman raised her hand and she said, why are we going to be studying about coping with problems? We are Christians. We don't have problems. And the look on all the other ladies' faces <laughs> uh, proved otherwise. <laughs> just imagine it from my vantage point in the audience at that, at that time. But people deal with, whether we know it or not, they deal with issues of depression. Uh, depression has been defined as anger turned inward. And that's a problem of living, and most of what we're going to talk about this afternoon are problems of living. I don't know how to deal with uh, chemical and biological problems that people are wrestling with. That's more of a medical issue. So we're restricting this to problems of living, all right? So depression may be something that people are wrestling with. And if it's an issue of uh, a, a problem of living, then we need to find out what they might be angry about and help them resolve that. Anxiety. This has been called the age of anxiety. And uh, I don't have to convince you that that's a problem in the church. This is the age, someone said, a famous poet. This is the age of anxiety. Anxiety, by definition, is the fear of future loss over which you have no control. Now, there are three parts to that definition. It is a fear and it is of a future loss, and thirdly, over which you have no control. This may be a crude illustration. You know, your young teenage son or daughter comes to you after they've received their driver's license, and they said, may I have the keys to the car? That's a fear. That can produce fear of future loss <laughs> over which you have no control if you give them the keys. That's anxiety. The loss of a loved one. Loneliness and aloneness. I have a chapter in my little book titled Loneliness. And uh, I almost left it out. 
but I found out that there are a lot of people in the church wrestling with uh, not aloneness. I mean, they wrestle with that as well, but loneliness, which is a little different. In other words, we are living in such a way that it pushes people away from us, and we feel alone. We're lonely, and it's primarily because of the way we are behaving. Then there are problems that involve the family as a whole. Uh, No big case, I think, needs to be made for the challenge of divorce in a family, how it affects the children and both parties involved. And then personality conflicts in marriage or disobedience uh, from children. I don't know how many times I've asked or parents have asked me, would you please talk to my son or my daughter because of the conflict and the, the problems. Or interestingly enough, I've noticed on a number of occasions there is a difference in maturing. couple gets married, and this could be 20 years down the road, and one all of a sudden uh, catches on and starts reading their Bible and delighting in reading Scripture, but their, but their spouse is kind of lagging behind compared to them. That can, be, that can create a problem in a marriage. Um, imagine, I'm not saying there are any problems here, but imagine that uh, a student in a school of biblical studies, you know, sitting for two years, uh, 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 22 months of reading and studying Scripture and growing, and the wife might be home uh, working hard and diligently taking care of the family or the children, but they're not growing in the same way that the, the student in the school is. That's why we have a women's program to help alleviate that problem as much as possible. And then, as you all know, there are things like substance abuse in the church by individuals. That could be alcohol, it could be uh, drug issues, and it affects the whole family. I have a dear friend in California who was brought up in, a, in an environment where his, the father was a drunkard. And uh, he struggled in that environment. And he tried very hard to acquire skills to survive emotionally in that environment. And he did. He acquired some skill to, that worked in that particular environment with his father. But when he got out of that environment and started dating... The skills he acquired, the skills he acquired in that home did not work in the, if I may say, the real world. Of course, that was the real world he was in. So, the problems are numerous. The problems are, uh, uh, are very challenging. Uh, people fall out of love. I've heard that a, a number of times. You know, some... Some sister calls and she says uh, so-and-so, her husband's called him and said he's fallen out of love with her. Well, if, if we understand love correctly, love is a decision, isn't it? You don't fall out of that kind of love because it's a decision to be everything Paul said it should be, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. One woman, having been married to a Christian man for a number of years, uh, received him home. Uh, only for him to say that that he uh, he loved her, but there's another woman at work he loves too. 
we have to learn to define our terms, don't we? We need to find out what, what's really behind the, uh, the concept or the idea of love. My, my definition of love, along with Paul and all, is that love is a benevolent impulse. It is the desire to do what is in the other person's best interest without a view toward anything we're getting from it. If you want to be a manipulator, that means you are seeking, you're trying to get someone else to do what's in your best interest. That's manipulation. But genuine love is doing what's in the other person's best interest. That's genuine love. And the desire to be with that person. That's, that's real, real love. And uh, so when someone like that comes to, this is one of the ways I think we can help people uh, resolve problems or work through challenges, is to help them define the terms better. Uh, a fellow says he, he, he loves his wife, but he loves this woman at work. Uh, I think this is a workshop sort of an environment. How would you respond to that? Someone came to your office or your home and they said that their spouse declared love for both the spouse and some person at work based on your understanding of love. I've got you at a disadvantage. That's right. Uh, Brother Mike uh, Beto says that that man came home uh, without love for either one of the women. See, if you're doing what's in the other person's best interest, are you going to, uh, are you going to place them in a situation where you are, you are, your love for them is divided with another, another woman or another man, depending on the circumstances? See, that's not genuine love. I would suggest that that man did not love the woman at work because he doesn't have her soul's best interest at heart. We're talking about a Christian man. And he is not demonstrating love for his own wife uh, because that wasn't in her best interest either. That was not a benevolent move on his part. He was manipulating a situation, two situations, in fact, for his own benefit. And then there are problems in the church. So you've got problems with individuals. You have problems that may, that may involve a whole family. And then you've got problems that spill out into the church. It's not uncommon for a family with problems to bring those problems to the church and to create trouble in the church. Um, I, again, I knew a family that uh, they were a very troubled family within the, the family unit and they would attend a church and stir up all kinds of trouble in that congregation and then they would move offended to another church only to stir things up in another way with that congregation and then move offended to another congregation and then to another congregation and uh, those are the sorts of things we have to we have to deal with in in the church so how, one of the questions that uh, Cody has asked me to address is how can we be there for one another, considering all the types of problems that people may be wrestling, even though they are uh, weaknesses and frailties. How do we address that? 
let me say, for, I've got two main points with two subpoints. all right? The first main point is uh, titled Two Challenges. And the first point under that is that not everyone wants help. You need to know that some people you're going to try to help do not want your help. You may get so frustrated with someone that at some point you may just determine you're going to get in your car and you're going to go over to where they are and you're going to get them out of the mess they're in. I mean physically get them out of the mess, into your car and into a safer environment. And they may go with you. And they may stay for a few days. But then they leave. I don't think I'm a rescuer by nature. But if I think I can help someone, I'm going to. And I have found that you cannot help everyone because not everyone wants help. Not everyone you want to rescue can be rescued. Uh, think about that hummingbird I, I held that, that uh, hammer out and very carefully walked toward it. It could have just flown away. It could have just flown all around that house, avoiding the help I was trying to give it. And some people are like that. They're like that hummingbird just flying all over the place, resisting whatever kind of help you can give them. And another problem I've noticed, this is all anecdotal, another problem I've noticed in uh, addressing problems in the church is people's perception of us. Now, Brother Troy mentioned something about perception, and there are different ways we can be perceived. And one way we can be perceived, I think, is illustrated by a man I knew, again, a number of years ago. He'd watched the Search for Truth uh, program, I think that was out of Oklahoma. And he was convinced of the truth. And so he hunted us out, gave us a call, started attending and visiting and worshiping with us. He was there for about three or four Sundays, and then he quit coming. So we had contact information, so I tried calling him, and uh, he wouldn't answer the phone. A couple months later, I tried calling him again, and he answered the phone. And I asked him how he was doing, if there's anything we could do to help. Do you know what his problem was? He had a serious problem with alcohol. And when he came to the church at Chino and saw us all neatly dressed and uh, singing songs and being kind and polite toward one another, he, he concluded that we ha all had our act together and that we couldn't understand him. There's no way we could ever relate to him. And on that phone call, I just said, if you only knew, if you only knew, if he had only stayed long enough to get to know us or, for let, or to let us get to know him, he would have found out that there were a number of members of the church who had had problems with alcohol or with drugs, and they succeeded in overcoming the problem. But he didn't wait long enough. And then a number of years later, I found him at another congregation, ironically, where my son and daughter-in-law attend. 
and he had been baptized and was moving on with his life. So that was, uh, that was good news to me. So we need to get to know one another uh, better. Uh, Brother Flavel Yakely, Brother Flavel Yakely, about 40 years ago, I think it was, uh, conducted a survey on church growth. He conducted a survey on, in Churches of Christ, and he came up with these statistics about us. And I'm not sure how accurate this is compared to 40 years ago. But he said 10% of us have no friends in the church. 10% of a congregation has no friends in the church. 30% have problems in the church, but they do not visit them. I'm not sure what to make of all this, but you decide for yourself what to make of this. 50% of us have friends in the church and visit them, but there's no spiritual dimension to the visit. No spiritual dimension. And then finally, 10% of us have friends in the church. We visit with those friends and enjoy a spiritual dimension in that visit, but only once a month on an average. So I wonder if there are some things that Does that mean we can't get together and play 42? I hope not. I hope not. But it does mean that we need to get together and um, enjoy each other's company and perhaps engage in uh, study or reading scripture or just talking about the Bible as a whole or even our own problems. Because we're not going to open up to one another, I don't think, in the four hours we're together in worship services and Bible studies. That's just not the vehicle for that to happen. Um, so, uh, so the first two points here, uh, you cannot rescue someone who does not want to be rescued. And number two, we need to help remove uh, false uh, perceptions that people have of us or the church. Now, here are two ways... There are, there's so much that could be said, and I'm so glad that they gave Brother Troy his subject, and you can just maybe take a look at this as two sides of the same coin. But here are two things, among others, that I think we can do to help. Because of the perception issue people have of us, we need to make genuine friendship, genuine friends of one another. And based on some uh, research I did so many years ago, I found that, uh, that a genuine friend, genuine friendships occur with uh, two ingredients. They involve two ingredients. The first is that we have the same goal in mind. So I am persuaded that glorifying God is the very primary purpose for which we live. Glorifying God. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's the definition of a good work. You do something that glorifies God through someone else. Someone else sees what you're doing and they glorify God for what you've done. That is a good work. So if glorifying God, if I'm correct, and glorifying God is the chief purpose for which we live, and I, 
I make, we make friendships based on that, that common goal. That means we are both looking down the same line. You're over here, and I'm over here, and we are looking down the same line with the ultimate goal of glorifying God. I do not believe a greater goal could, could uh, be considered where friendship is concerned. I think the highest level of friendship that we could ever attain in this life is for a Christian man and a Christian woman to marry with that one goal in mind. That makes for a pretty great, pretty great combination, pretty great, uh, great ingredients for a friendship. Now, the better the goal, the greater the quality of the friendship. So if, if we get together and we decide, hey, let's go rob the bank, we become friends that day, and the quality of our goal is going to determine the quality of our friendship. Herod and Pilate became friends in, according to Luke 23, verse 12. They became friends and plotted to destroy Jesus. That was not a good friendship. Friendship? Yeah. But not a good one. Because the quality of the goal was not what it should have been. So imagine, if I'm correct in all this, imagine if everyone in a congregation determined that the primary goal for everyone, each one took this upon themselves, was to glorify God. That means everyone is pulling in the same direction. Imagine what great good could be had if that was our purpose in life. So now imagine... Uh, the trouble that could occur if, if someone starts walking out of step and their goal is not to glorify God. Think about all the combinations of trouble that could be produced if people decided that glorifying God was not the primary purpose for which they live. Just as a brief uh, exercise here, not ask you for a show of hands or any responses, but if you could keep in the forefront of your mind that glorifying God was the purpose for which you lived every day of your life, would you do anything different? How might that change the way a man treats his wife? I'm talking about in the church. How might that change the way a woman treats her husband? If you young people, do we have young people here? They're in the other room, aren't they? Well, Imagine young people who determine that they're going to make glorifying God the chief purpose for which they exist. Would that change anything, any of their behavior? I think it would change a lot of things in, in the world. So, so genuine friendship is based on uh, having the same goal, looking down the same goal, the same line, toward the same goal, and that goal being to glorify God. And the second, the second prong of that uh, definition for friendship is the benevolent impulse I was talking about earlier with reference to love. The benevolent impulse, just imagine that. The benevolent impulse is the desire to do what is in the other person's best interest, not in your own. If you're, if you're operating under the impression of trying to get someone else to do what's in your best interest, that's more manipulation than it is friendship. So, 
if we could, if we could develop, continue to develop friendships with one another based on the, the, the idea that glorifying God was the primary purpose for which we exist, uh, and we had a benevolent impulse toward the other people in the church, can anyone see how that might change uh, or might help someone in the church? Because problems often arise because uh, glorifying God is not the primary purpose for which they... Remember Diotrephes in, in Third John? What was his problem? He sought the preeminence. And according to Colossians 1, there's only one preeminent one in the church, and that's Jesus Christ. So there's no place for the Diotrephes. One other thing, because I know my time's going to run out here, and I think this is probably the most important thing I have to say, because I think the power of knowing this would go a long way to helping in counseling situations or in helping each one of us. I received a phone call from a mother who told me that her daughter seemed uh, suicidal. She wanted to know if I could come talk with her. Now, I'm, again, I'm not, I'm not licensed or anything, but, you know, when you write a book titled Coping, people think maybe you could help. That's not always true. But uh, I said I'd be glad to come talk to her if she wants me to, and she did. So we finally got together, and uh, the young lady was about 25 years of age, and I said, tell me how you got here. Tell me how you got to where you are now. And she said, as she said, I think it started when my father died when she was 15. When her father died, she quit going to church. She met a fellow named Prince Charming. And she moved out of her home and moved in with him. Not married, but they moved in together. And uh, she had in her mind this vision of being able to, to marry and to have children and to live happily ever after. Sounds like a good picture, good dream. They, uh, they drank, they were in a horse town, and so they, they used horse tranquilizers for fun. Um, all of her destruction, I mean, all of the, the behavior she described to me sound pretty self-destructive. And so after about 30 minutes of describing what got her to where she no longer wanted to get up and go to work anymore, might have even thought about ending her life, she ended her discussion, her description, and I asked her, would you say that everything you've done to this point in your life, you've done because you thought it would make you happy? Now I want you to think about that. Self-destructive behavior. Did you choose to do it because you thought it would make you happy? She started crying. Anyone want to guess what she said? She nodded her head in the affirmative. She had a very perplexed look on her face, and she was crying. 
And so we talked about happiness. You know, Aristotle in his book, Ethics, Nicomachean Ethics, argues that all men so order their lives as to be happy. Now, you don't have to nod your head, but I, I really do want you to think about this. And I think the whole world has agreed with him. I believe that most of us do. We pursue happiness. We want to be happy. And we define that as getting what we want when we want it. But there's another kind of happiness that we could say or describe as ethical happiness. Ethical happiness involves living a life well because it is rooted in virtue. And virtue is the habit of right desire. God determines what right desires are. When you live your life like that, you're living an ethically good life. It's a judgment made about your life at the end of your life, not at any point in your life. It's a judgment made just prior to your death or maybe when you die. And they, people look back over the course of your life and they, they determine whether you live life well or not because you pursued what was good. Now, I would say glorifying God is the chief purpose for our existence. And many of the other passages, I'm trying to rush through this to the end here, but many of the other passages we often go to for the primary purpose are the function more as means to the end. If I were to ask and had the time to ask, what do you suppose, biblically speaking, is the chief purpose for which we exist? I would probably get a, a good, appropriate list of things like Ecclesiastes 12:13. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. Or Matthew 6:33, seek ye first. Doesn't that sound pretty prior? Uh, I mean, uh, primary, the word first is in it. Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things shall be added unto you. Some might say, well, it's going to heaven. Uh, that sounds pretty primary. Uh, how about love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind, and a second like unto it is this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two the whole law the prophets hang. Go back and look at those passages and ask, do they function as a means to any other end? Does glorifying God or does uh, fearing God and keep his commandments, keeping his commandments function as a means to any other end? Is that not the means by which God is glorified? Or seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? Aren't those the means by which Jesus is glorified? How about John 8, 29? Jesus said, for I do always those things that are pleasing unto him. That's how he glorified the Father. Exalted and magnified the Father. Let me close by saying this. Happiness is not the primary goal. The primary goal is to glorify God. And when you glorify God, God blesses you with what you might call happiness. You cannot obtain it the other way around. One man said, if you put second things first, you don't get first or second things. If you put happiness first, just like that young woman I was describing earlier, and I could give you case after case of people who said the same thing, would you say that everything you did, you did because you thought it would make you happy? 
and with tears and a confused look on their face, they say yes. It's because they put second things first. Glorify God. Happiness is a byproduct. And I think if we can get people in the church and ourselves, we have to start with ourselves first. If we can begin by seeing that reality and then helping others in the church to see that, I think that when people are struggling or wrestling with issues of life, the issues of life, we may go a long way toward helping them resolve their conflicts and their troubles.